All right. Good morning, Jabari. How are you? I'm doing all right, Gary. All right. Uh, the kids can be dismissed. They're going to continue the Christmas festivities back there. And uh, we are back in the, the Gospel of Luke, and Jabari is going to read God's Word for us this morning. All right, you can follow along on the screen. There you go. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who, had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boat, both of the boats, so that it began to sink. But when Simon, Pe Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, and Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Man, thank you. All right, let's pray. Thank you so much for your word. Uh, Lord, without it, I would have nothing to say this morning. We, we trust and believe that your word is perfect, that it is inspired of the Holy Spirit of God. And I pray that you would use it to plant seeds in our hearts so that we could bring forth fruit that shows true repentance and true uh, evidence of salvation. I pray that we would be uh, more like Christ today because of the word of God than we that came here. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it was Lord Acton that said, all power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You've seen that happen. People are given a title, a position, elected to office, and all of a sudden, they just think they're it, and pride goes before what? A fall, right? And so 
Do you see that happen? People cannot handle power. People cannot handle being in charge. They can't handle things like that. But one person could. Jesus is going to show us through this passage that he is, has all authority and no corruption. He doesn't give in because he's elected or anything like that. He wasn't elected. He is king. And he doesn't change or get corrupted by that. Human beings do. Think about that. Uh, Benjamin Franklin said that all forms of government are evil and that re the, the, a democratic republic is just the least of all the evils. Because the only perfect government that we will ever experience is a benevolent dictatorship which will Christ will bring. He will be the ultimate king. There, we won't vote on anything. Everything will be what he wants. It will be his will. And, but he, he's good. So everything he wants for us, every law he will pass, every decree that he will enforce will be for our good and for his glory. He will not be, and he's not corrupted by it. So not only can we as sinful people not handle being in authority, we also struggle to be under authority as well. It's funny, when we get in charge, we tend to mess up and let it go to our heads, but then we're under authority, we tend to not like it, and we all have our little rebellious side. And you'll see that throughout this passage today. We're going to divide it up into four sections here. First of all, Jesus is going to demonstrate his authority over sickness. Jesus heals, amen? Jesus is going to show that sickness is not outside of his purview, that he is the great physician. He's going to show also authority that he has over, the, over demons and authority over his own mission, why he came to earth. And then number four, the authority over creation itself. In verse 38, it says, And he arose and left the synagogue. We just taught last week how the passage seven times, it talks about Jesus in synagogues. He brought the word of God to God's people in God's house, and that's, that was his mission. Even the apostle Paul said that when he preached the gospel, it was to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Going to synagogues, it was the priority. And so Jesus is traveling around synagogue to synagogue, teaching the word of God. He's taking the Old Testament and saying, hey, all of this, it points to me. And, and some synagogues, revival broke out, and they became places of worship for Christians. Other, other synagogues, in fact, in fact, most of them, rejected the message and kicked them out. Now, it says Simon's mother-in-law. There's a couple of things here. First of all, up until this point, it always refers to Peter as Simon. And then you're going to see this transition in this passage where it's Simon Peter, and then from now on, It'll be Peter, okay? How many of you get called by your middle name when you're in trouble, when you were a kid, okay? So um, this is not, Peter's not in trouble, okay? He's just showing there's a transformation. Simon Peter, they commonly called him Simon, but after his conversion experience, he's gonna be called Peter. You saw a similar thing with Saul was then called what? Paul, you see that with other people. Um, but also you see here, Simon has a mother-in-law. Now the last time I checked, in order to ha have a mother-in-law, you have to also have one of these, that they married. But according to our Catholic friends, Peter is the first pope, and popes and priests are not married, but here he is. And you see all throughout the Bible that elders and leaders in the church were encouraged to be married, unless they were given the gift of singleness. That was a different thing. But denominations that teach single priesthood or single leaders are just setting themselves up for trouble. But that's a, a side issue. I won't get into that much more. Um, but his mother-in-law was ill. She had an extremely high fever. And this is in a day where antibiotics and Tylenol weren't readily available. There were other 
medicinal things that they could use, but maybe not as working as well. And in this case, this is a serious illness. And they appealed to him on her behalf. They're going to Jesus, begging him to please heal the mother-in-law. Um, this brings up an interesting issue of, of intercessory prayer, where you go to Jesus on someone else's behalf. Very biblical. You see this all throughout the New Testament. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, it talks about a guy named Epaphras. And he says, he's one of you. He, he's just an everyday believer who loves Jesus just like you guys do. He's a servant of Christ Jesus. And he, as he, Paul's writing this letter, he, he wanted to tell you, he said hi. So he writes that in there and say, hey, Epaphras says hi, and he greets you. And here's what he's known for, struggling on your behalf in his prayers. I find the word struggling fascinating. Should prayer be a struggle? Yeah, it should. It's hard. In fact, I, I find it to be one of the weakest areas of my Christian disciplines. I, I could study the Bible for hours. I could talk to people about Jesus for hours. I could do all these things. I could serve. I can clean whatever. But prayer, it just seems like squirrel, you know, <laughs> and just get distracted and my mind just drifts. It's something we struggle with. And because we, especially me, are very selfish beings, we tend to pray over our list, and we're like, oh, yeah, that's right. I guess, I guess I should at least pray for somebody else, you know? And so Epaphras, though, he works through all those struggles, and he spends time praying for other people for whatever suffering, whatever sickness, whatever challenges they had. How are we doing with that? How are we doing with our prayers for others? You know, it's interesting that when Jesus taught us to pray, he didn't say, my Father who is in heaven. He said, what? Our Father. Prayer is meant to be a collective thing, that we go together to God for one another, to pray for one another. And yes, even to struggle in our prayers for one another. So they did that for Peter's uh, mother-in-law. They went to Jesus on her behalf. And we all should make a practice of going to Jesus on behalf of other people in need. So Jesus stood over her, and he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And so here's what this scene might have looked like. Um, in fact, uh, Ethan, would you turn off the lights for me? In, out there, oh, Bob, you know where they are. I'm sorry, I put you on the spot. See, the middle light switch over there. So this is a scene from The Chosen, and, uh, and I just give you kind of a feel of what it might be like. In fact, I'm going to show two scenes from The Chosen this morning. And so here... Uh, Jesus comes to Peter and his wife's house, and the mother-in-law is sick. I feel respect. Her forehead burns my hand to the touch. Where should get the doctor? There is no need. Who are you? This is Jesus of Nazareth. You've never met him before. Welcome to my son-in-law's home. Thank you. What am I doing lying here? 
You had a terrible fever. And all of you staring down. Dasha, don't. No one move. I'll be right back with some drink. And here's here, top of this pie. Coming. Yes, I love goat cheese. I should, yeah, see about yeah, goat cheese. <laughs> Me? For what? For obeying and following him. Let him hear. Simon, Nectar is your plan. All right. Thank you, Bob, for turning it back on. And so, so immediately she rose and began to serve them. So that was part of the story there that, that was biblical, that her response to being healed was to serve others. And whether you've experienced physical healing from a disease, cancer, whatever, or you're, you've experienced the ultimate healing, the healing of your soul and being cleansed from sin, our response to Jesus' healing should be what? To serve. To serve others. How, how, what a shame it would be to be redeemed, to know that all your sins have been paid for, and that all that's in the past, and that you will spend eternity with Jesus Christ in heaven and then to do nothing about it, to not respond by helping others and serving others, serving the Lord's church, serving your neighbors, serving those in need. That's what she did, and it was a great response. In fact, it's interesting, in Luke, there's 21, interesting number there, right? Specifically named miracles. Now, we, it alludes to the fact that there's a lot more miracles than that, but it names 21 specifically. And of course, the number three is the number of God, and seven is the number of perfection, so we've got that Seven sets of three throughout it. And so it's interesting observation. Luke puts a lot of emphasis on miracles, a lot of emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And here we see not only does Jesus have authority over sickness, he has authority over the demonic, over demons. It says, and when the sun was setting, I think that's, that literally happened, but I also think it's a metaphor. Darkness is coming upon the earth. He's trying to set the stage here. If you were watching this as a play, the lights would go dim and dark. It says, and, who, and there, all those who had any who were sick, so people who had friends and relatives that were sick with various diseases, a variety of diseases, Jesus didn't heal just certain diseases. He healed all of them. They brought them to him. So these people were so sick, they probably couldn't make it there. But they, other people went to the effort. They went to the trouble. They went through the struggle of bringing their friends who needed healing to Jesus. And that's what our job is as Christians. We are to bring others to Christ, not just for physical healing, but for the most important healing of all, and that is the healing of the soul. Because man's greatest need right now is not a better economy. America's greatest need right now is not more education. America's greatest need, the world's greatest need is Jesus. And people aren't just running in droves to fill up churches. In fact, our culture's going the other direction. They're like, ah, who needs church, you know? That's just a whole bunch of old-fashioned stuff that my grandparents did, and I want to be free to do what I want, you know, imbibe whatever, look what I want, do whatever drugs I want, sleep with whoever I want. I want to be free. And really all those things result in chains, addiction, 
STDs, broken hearts, broken lives, and they think they're free, but they need someone like you who cares to bring them to Jesus. And that, that's what's going on here. They're bringing the sick, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. Matt, can you imagine being there? That would have been amazing. And that's interesting. There's times when Jesus chose not to heal everyone. I think about the pool of Bethesda. Who knows how many people? 75, 100, 150 people? If you've been there, you can see. I haven't been there, but you can see about how many people might hold. And it says there was all kinds of people with various diseases there. And Jesus is like walking through and stepping over people. And he goes all the way up to this one guy and says, do you want to be healed? And the guy's like, who, me? And, and Jesus heals them and says, hey, take up your bed, follow me. Walks out. And it leaves all the other people behind. So here's a contrast. Jesus is healing everybody. And other times he chose not to heal anybody. And sometimes he chose just to heal one. Jesus can do what he wants to do, amen? <laughs> so it's pretty obvious. And it says, and, and he laid his hands on everyone and healed them. And then it says, and demons also came out of many. Not all. Many of them had demons. So there were some that were sick, but no demons. Some who had demons and not sick, and some who had both. And you can see that demons and the demonic can cause physical harm, physical illness, be behind many things like that. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, make a very clear distinction between sickness and demon possession. Okay, this is important. If you look like in Mark chapter 1, it says that evening at sundown, again, this mood being set, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. In this situation, here's people who are sick, and here's people demon possessed. And the reason that's important is because um, some, some were sick and not possessed, and some were sick because they were possessed. Do you see the difference there? There's two extremes when it comes to healing. People will say, well, every sickness is demonic. And the Gospels made it clear, no. Some people were sick and some had demons. Other people go to another extreme and say, well, all sickness can be medically explained, and they were just superstitious back then. You know, they explained away every sickness by just calling it a demon. And those two extremes are both wrong. Satan is behind every rock causing every little thing that goes wrong. We live in a world that has sickness and it's cause of the fall. But we can't say Satan's behind nothing and he has nothing to do with it. People go to two extremes. The Bible gives us a, a really clear balance and those two extremes are wrong. It says, And the demons came out of many saying, You are the Son of God. Now, on the surface, what's wrong with that statement? Let, let's, let's dig in and find out. It says, But he rebuked them and he would not allow them to speak. But what they were saying was true. So what is Jesus' problem with this? And it's because they knew that he was the Christ. And Jesus, at this point in his ministry, is really not letting that word get out. He knew that if he really stepped in day one, said, hey, I'm the Messiah, boom, 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 that the ball would have ro started rolling really faster than he could have gotten his ministry done. So that's why many times he'd heal somebody. And what would he tell them after he healed them? Don't tell anybody. So here the demons are trying to get the execution, the crucifixion happening now by saying, you're the son of God. And Jesus is like, no, no. Even though what you're saying is true, I don't want you talking right now. So why did Jesus not want them to say the truth, that he was the son of God? I, I think there's two reasons. There's probably a whole lot more, but let me give you two. Number one, it was a matter of timing. He didn't want to get that ball rolling and start the Passion Week now. He had three and a half years of ministry to accomplish. But number two, it's also, I think it was association. There's a lot of religious people saying a lot of things that are true, but you've got to consider the source. 
Do you really want that coming from them? You know, there's a lot of people who claim to be Christians. I wish they would just be quiet <laughs> because their life doesn't match it. Their hypocrisy underlies the message and they make other Christians look bad. And I think that's what's happening here. He's saying, you know what? I don't want to, if anybody's going to go around saying the son of God is going to come from me and my disciples, I don't want demons going around proclaiming this. Sometimes it's a matter of association. Paul dealt with the same thing. In Acts 16, it says, And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. You know, that's, that's like, you know, tarot cards and all kinds of things like that that are demonic. And he brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So here's this little slave girl. She's possessed by demons. These demons are trying to tell people the future. They're selling her services to other people, making money off of it. And she followed Paul and us, the other disciples that are with them, Silas and other. And it says, in crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim you, to you the way of salvation. Is there anything wrong with that statement? No. But Paul doesn't want to be associated with that. You know, it's interesting that people who dabble in the occult also talk about Jesus, <laughs> talk about prayer, you know, and they, they, they can read your palms, and they can do tea leaves, and they can say, hey, and, and this crystal will help you talk to Jesus. It's the wrong Jesus. You don't want to be associated with that. And Paul didn't want his ministry associated with this lady and this young lady. And says, and, and this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having been greatly annoyed, <laughs> she's getting on his everlast nerve. And he turned around and said to the spirit, not to the little girl. He loves the little girl. But he says to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Okay, so Paul had the same dilemma Jesus says. Here's people saying the truth. But because of the association, he doesn't want to be involved with that. Let, let's, let's have a logical conversation this morning about the demonic in our world today. Um, let me ask you this hypothetical question. Can a Christian musician who loves Jesus pray for a song that they've wrote and performed to reach the people with the gospel and that God will answer that prayer and bless that song? How many of you believe that that can happen? Okay. I do. I, I believe. So it wasn't a trick question. <laughs> not trying to catch you off guard. I believe that God can take certain songs and bless them supernaturally, anoint them, if you want to use that word, to spread the gospel and just touch people's hearts. I mean, we heard some of them this morning. But let's think about this. Another question. Can an evil musician who loves Satan pray for that song to make them wealthy and then Satan will answer that prayer and put a curse, not a blessing, but a curse on that song to make it successful. Can that happen? Yeah, it does. I was watching a video of a, 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 of a Christian recording artist who became a Christian. And they were talking about how in these uh, studios, they will sprinkle blood on the music and pray over it and ask Satan to do just that. I want you to think about this. What was Satan's job before he fell? He was the leader of worship. Tool, the, the greatest tool that he used was music. Do you think he's lost that ability? I want to tell you today, I believe that, and it's not being superstitious, I believe that music is one of the most powerful tools Satan uses. And we live in a world where the majority, Jesus said, hey, you're not in the majority. You know, that wide's the road that leads to hell. ACDC reminded us of that, a highway to hell, okay? And that narrows the way that leads to salvation. 
and there's a few that find it. So we are in the few. We live in a world. And so therefore, the overwhelming majority of our music glorifies not God, but Satan. The overwhelming majority of our music. Now, when I was a teen, um, Black Sabbath and other heavy metal bands were very openly satanic. Some people thought it was just a, a stunt to gain popularity. No, it definitely was not. They, they sang about Satan. Um, ACDC was... I, I was very into D, ACDC as a teenager. And um, I remember as a teenager playing WMMR, the, the heavy metal station in near Philadelphia. Growing up as a kid, and I fell asleep to it. I woke up like in the middle of the night to the song Hell's Bells and just felt darkness in the room and just woke up just shaking and just pushed the power button like, I've got to listen to my preacher and stop listening to this junk. This is messing me up. And they would sing very, very evil, satanic songs. And heavy metal was the ones who were all into it. Um, who was this group again? Slayer, yeah, this is Slayer, very openly satanic. But you know, times have changed, and all kinds of music are involved in this, some more subtle than others. Um, little, little Nas X, very, very satanic. You can't, I can't even talk about this, uh, this video. It's just pornographic. He's, anyway, he's involved with Satan. Um, other rap bands are involved in Satan, very openly about it. Uh, Doja Cat uh, sings lots of rap songs that are satanic. And uh, Big L, his album, Return of the Devil's Son. Okay, I mean, right, can we be any more blatant about this, about what's involved? Listen to the lyrics of this song. I can't read all of it. Oh, my skull, this, this, on my skull, the 666, no tricks. When I catch fits, like in the way he's demon-possessed and he's having a fit, my mom picks up the crucifix I killed chumps for the cheapest price. I'm rolling with Satan, not Jesus Christ. Enemies, I've got several done. Big L straight from hell. Can't read the rest, devil's son. Um, you know, I used to offer about once a year the 30-day music challenge to say, hey, I challenge you to listen to nothing but Christian music for the next 30 days. How about we just do something better? We just make Jesus Lord of the music in our life. Stop listening to this junk. I mean, and I'm sure some may be sitting back going, well, you know, that's heavy metal and rap. Thank the God I listen to country. <laughs> yeah, yeah, country. Every other song, one night stand in the bar on Saturday night, going and singing Amazing Grace on Sunday morning. I, I know I'm going to make somebody mad with this. I believe, I believe country music is written for backslidden Christians or people who think they are. I'm just telling you straight. There's so much Jesus mixed in country music while they're at the bar and while they're sleeping around. And it's just like, that's more subtle than wearing horns. I mean, maybe Garth Brooks should pour out the horns and say, oh, look at me, ah, you know. But why not, why not just make Jesus Lord of our life and just say you can have my music too? I, I went through that struggle as a teenager. I, it, it took a lot of work to, to give up secular music I'm not saying none, but I'm saying a lot less. <laughs> you know, give the, make Jesus Lord of all. Jesus also shows authority over his mission. And when it was day, he departed. You see, now the daylight's coming. Jesus is doing something different. He went to a desolate place. Let me ask you a question. Why 
that Jesus have this often habit of going to desolate places. What was he doing? He was praying. If you think, yeah, I have three and a half years to start a worldwide movement that's going to change history, you think you'd be working seven days a week, 24-7, like sleeping four hours and just going and going and going. And yet several times, Jesus stopped everything and said, you know what? I just need to go alone and pray. Can I tell you, all of the greatest things God has ever done for Revolution Church are a result of prayer. Taking time to pray. We can work, 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 you know, try to reach people, to build buildings, do whatever, but the greatest things God has ever done is all a result of prayer. And it says, and the people sought him, and they came to him. They were interrupting his prayer time, you know, but they wanted to see Jesus, can't blame them. And they would have kept them from leaving. You know, he's like, okay, I really need to get away. But they're like, no, 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 Jesus, please stay. And it says, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. You know, he had this, this plan mapped out. And he's preaching the kingdom of God. And of course, this passage, this whole sermon is about the authority of Jesus. And what is greater uh, emblematic of, of the authority of Jesus is the kingdom of God. You think about when when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, listen, think about the theme of authority. Our Father, the authority figure over the family, who is in heaven, the throne of God, where all of his authority emanates from. Hallowed be your name. Everything is done under his name, under his authority. Your kingdom come. Your will, your authority, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The whole prayer is about God's authority over us. And yet everything in our sinful hearts is like, oh, I want to be my own boss. I want to be a self-made person. I want to pull myself up by my own bootstraps and brag about my successfulness and look back and say, hey, look, see, here I am. Here's other people. Look, look, see? And yet God says, no, you need to get under my authority, the kingdom of God. He says, I need to preach that gospel to people and make it known to other. He says, for, I was sent for this purpose. This is my mission on earth. He waited till 30 to start his ministry. He knows he's going to die around 33 and a half-ish. He's got three and a half, half years. He is focused. He has total authority over his mission. He's going to be in control, and he's going to stay on plan. In Luke chapter 4, it says, he, we learned this a few weeks ago, he fulfilled this prophecy from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? Proclaim the good news. My whole mission in life is to preach the gospel. I need to go from town to town. I don't have the internet. I don't have a radio station. I'm not selling CDs. I am traveling, and I'm focused on this to proclaim the good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. He chose not to have a marriage, not to have kids. He probably saved up a lot of money from his stonemason carpentry days. He's living off of other people's offerings and whatever he has. He, doesn't have, he says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. He set aside all those things to focus for three and a half years just on one mission, and that was to spread the gospel. And so he was preaching in the synagogues. And again, if you missed last week's sermon, I encourage you to go back to hear that, just how vital that, that the essential ministry must be focused on preaching of the Word of God. That we need to be a church that loves preaching, a church that focuses on the Word of God, not on entertainment, not on pipes, pop psychology, but focusing on the preaching of the gospel. And so we saw that there was three regions. Jesus spent a lot of time up north in Galilee. He would pass back and forth through Samaria, 
And, you know, we talked about the woman at the well in Samaria and all that stuff. Now he's heading south to Judea to preach in all those towns down there. He pretty much covered all of Galilee, maybe all of it literally. So imagine the amount of prayer, planning, focus, and following the leadership of the Holy Spirit, all that working together, was involved to travel to that many cities in only three and a half years. And all that laid the groundwork for the movement that would rapidly spread worldwide and change history like no other movement ever has. Can you imagine that? If somebody said, you have three and a half years to change the world. (laughs) You had to have the leadership of the Holy Spirit to make all that happen. That's why Jesus said, hey, I got to go pray about this. And remember, Jesus set aside his deity, set aside most of his powers, and he acted just totally as a human being filled with the Spirit of God to show us how to do it, to show how the Holy Spirit's leadership and filling works in our life. So as the church of the Lord Jesus, we need to have that same laser focus that Jesus had on his mission. What are we here for? What would happen if you got saved and Jesus said, okay, boom, come to heaven. (laughs) Oh, another one got saved, boom, come to heaven. And just, but he left you here. He left you here for a purpose, and that is to share the gospel, to invite other people to come hear the gospel, to share your testimony. You know, you may say, well, I'm not really good with the Bible. I don't really know what to say. Just tell your story. Just say, hey, you know, can I share something important with you? When I was 14 years old or whatever age you were, you know, I heard the gospel. I heard that I was a sinner, that Jesus had died for me, and I gave my life to him. And yeah, I'm not perfect, but I just wanted to tell you that because that's the most important thing in my life. So we saw Jesus has authority over sickness. Jesus had authority over demons. He had authority over his own mission that he was going to take control. And now we're going to see he has authority over creation. On one occasion, it's interesting, that little phrase there. Well, here Luke is telling you, hey, I'm not being chronological here. There was, you ever tell stories? Hey, I remember one time we did this. And you just went back in time. It's like, wait, what happened? I thought you were here. And people will point to the skeptics will point to, see, the Bible's not chronological. You know, Matthew had it, this miracle, this miracle, this miracle, and Luke has it, this one, this way. And Luke's saying, I'm not trying to be chronological. Matthew wrote the biographical, I'm doing the theological. And so Luke will hop around. It's like if we were all sitting around, you know, dinner table, and we say, remember when you, you had a donkey at your first, first birthday party and all that? Stuff? Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember another time that somebody did a petting zoo, and you just went from one years old to seven years old back to 12, and just all over the place as you're telling stories. The stories are based on the theme, not the chronology. So Luke is laying out a theme, the authority of Jesus. So he's saying, hey, I'm not trying to be chronological. So some skeptics will point out and say, see, there's contradictions in the Bible. Just read it carefully and you'll see. Luke is trying to tell you this, this. I'm going back. I'm doing a flashback here. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. Isn't that great? People pressing in to hear the word of God. That's what they needed most. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Now, fishing was mostly done at night. And it was very hard work. And cleaning the nets was super hard because they would drag in all kinds of seaweed, dead things like that. And so they had to cut that stuff out and they had to clean their nets so they wouldn't drag. And they slowed down the next time they fished. And so these guys are done. They are done fishing. They're cleaning their nets. But Jesus has this crowd pressing in on them. And he's like, hey, I need some space here because I can't speak to everybody while everybody's pressing in against me. 
And so getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, who was Simon? Peter, right? He asked him to put out a little from the land. So the boat's like right up there floating next to the shore. He asked him to put it out. And he sat down in the boat and taught the people from the boat. Everything was like kind of backwards here. And you, we're used to everybody sits while the person speaking stands. Here Jesus sits while everybody's standing on the shore. And you saw that in synagogues as well. And he sat down and he did what? He taught them. Which did Jesus do more, teaching or preaching? Teaching. Two, twice as much teaching as preaching. Both are super important, but people need to have information and so they can process it. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep. Um, so take the boat out a little farther. I'm going to show you a video of this, and this is one of the errors that they didn't put out into the deep. They're just still close to shore, but minor thing there. And let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, which master here means teacher. That's what they called rabbis, you know, like the master teacher. We, we toiled all night. I mean, we worked all night. We're talking possibly 12 hours, maybe 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. We don't know. And we took nothing, like not even one fish. You know, they're used to catching a lot of fish, you know, baskets full maybe. Uh, but they didn't catch even one. Hey, but at your word, I'll let down the nets. Why, why does Peter just quickly say, but that's your word, I'll do it. I don't think this is a submission thing. It's like, see, I told you. <laughs> it's like, Jesus, you know the Bible. I'd be glad it's the Bible, but I know fishing. I mean, we have a fleet of boats here. We, we're not just little poor fishermen. We're doing okay with this, okay? And so I know a lot more about fishing than you do. You need to stick to the carpentry and the, and the stonework. Let me take care of the fishing, and just to prove you wrong, I'll, I'll go ahead and put the nets in. Let me ask you a question. What if Jesus came to your workplace? I had a, a sad experience. It was a long, long time ago that I actually went to the workplace of one of my church members. I was just there to do business. I wasn't there to pry or whatever. And uh, they said, hey, Gary, how's it going? And I said, good. Blah, blah, blah. And they walked on through. And the other person goes, how do you know them? And I said, oh, they go to my church. And they go, they go to church? Not my church. They go to the Methodist church. Yeah, just, just kidding. No. Uh, but would Jesus be welcome at your workplace? Would people be surprised that you know him and he knows you and you're close? Do people think of you as, as a Christian? Now, now, I'm not asking for perfection. We know that none of us are per perfect, right? But do they know that you're a believer? Are you open about that, open about your faith? And, and the way that you do your job is Jesus, is it okay if Jesus comes in and tells you to do it differently? You'd be like, oh, Jesus, okay, you have the Sunday thing. Let me do the Monday through Friday thing. Or would we really be willing to submit to his authority in our lives? And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. And large is, is the understatement here. And their net, so much so their nets were breaking. And they signaled to the, their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and they filled both boats so, they be, so much so they began to sink. Jesus was pushing the limits there. I mean, the, the nets are breaking, the boats are sinking. The first thing that man was to have dominion over when God created the world, when Jesus spoke the world into existence, was the fish of the sea. Isn't that interesting? Let's, let's read about it. In, in Genesis, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And here's the God-man, the likeness of God, in person, and the first thing God says man should have dominion over is the fish of the sea. And Peter totally fails at this. He caught what? Nothing. 
And Jesus is saying, hey, the one who spoke the world into existence and said the very first thing I want man to have dominion over is fishing. Amen, brother? How many are fishermen? Okay, I'm not, but anyway, uh, fishing women, whatever, all that. So fishing's biblical. It's the very first thing God said to dominate. And birds were next. Pheasants, turkeys, all those things we should be shot. Okay? Jesus demonstrates his authority over creation to prove that he is the creator. He's trying to use this as a hyperlink back to Genesis and say, hey, see all that fish that came from me? I'm the one that gives you the ability to have dominion over it, just like I told Adam to do. In Colossians, it says, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And now watch this transition from creation to authorities, thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and what? For him. The trees are for Jesus. The stars are for Jesus. The rivers, the mountains, they're all for Jesus. You and I are what? We're for Jesus. We belong to him. We are his property. Say, I don't know if I like that word. Get used to it. We physically belong. He created us. He owns us. He owns us twice over. He owns us through creation. We went away from him. He redeemed us and bought us back again by his own blood. He owns us twice over. And we don't really like that idea. We're, we, it, it, we, there's something inside of us that kind of cringes when we think about that. And that's what humanity is having trouble with. I don't want to listen to God. I don't, don't give me your Bible. Don't give me your religion. I don't want to hear anything about that. And it's not just, oh, they have trouble with hypocrisy. Even the best of Christians, even Jesus Christ himself was rejected. And it wasn't because of hypocrisy on his part. The attack on the first chapters of Genesis as an assault against the authority of Jesus as the creator of the universe. When people say, oh yeah, I believe the Bible, I just don't believe the first several chapters of the Bible are literal. I believe that that could be six eons, six billion years or whatever. Then why did Moses and Jesus say, God created the earth in six days on the seventh day you shall rest? Wait a minute. We should get a billion years off on one day. Every Sabbath, just take a billion years off because that's what they meant back then, right? No. Jesus and Paul and Moses all referred to that as a literal week. And because of that, that one day, you, you exercise the Sabbath. They, they, weren't, they were talking about a literal day. The word yom in Hebrew, everywhere in the Bible where it's used, it means a literal 24-hour day. There are other times it says, like, in the day of Noah, where it means an era of time. It's a different Hebrew word. But people want to attack this, and they want to sound intellectual because the whole world is against this. And, and that it's really an attack on the authority of Christ. If he did not create us, then he has no authority over us. If, if we evolved from monkeys, then let me ask you, which monkey first sinned? Okay? The Bible says, Jesus says a literal Adam sinned, and that sin and death passed upon all men because of Adam. Well, if, if we went from, you know, all different levels of monkeys to man, where did the first sin happen? If there's no original sin, then what did Jesus die for? See, Jesus points to that as a literal time when Adam fell, and then he points to himself as the second Adam who died for the sins of all mankind and reversed the curse that Adam brought. But if he did create us, then he has total authority over us, and then we must obey him alone. And this is what the issue is really all about. 
But when Simon Peter, see before he's called Simon, 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 now it's Simon Peter, and after this it'll just be Peter only. When he saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Before he said, master, teacher, now he's saying what? Lord. You see, he's accepted his authority. Oh, you're the teacher of the Bible. I listened to that, but now you're the Lord of my life. And it's interesting, he fell down at his knees. Jesus never rejected worship. People say, well, Jesus wasn't God. He never claimed to be God. <laughs> over and over again. When, when, when he was resurrected, Doubting Thomas saw him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him and said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, I'm not your God. Did he reject that worship? No. You saw Paul and Silas performing miracles like Jesus and people fell down at his feet. And they're like, no, no, get up, get up. We're not God. And in the book of Revelation, you see John falling down at angels' feet and the angel says, no, no, get up. You see, you see them rejecting worship. Jesus is receiving worship because Jesus is God. And he says, depart from me. That, what a weird phrase. You just filled both my boats with fish. Would you please get out of here? Why does, Jesus, why does um, Peter want Jesus to depart from him? First of all, he knows that he can't depart from him. He, he know, I think what's ringing through David, this is just my guess here, okay? What's ringing through P Peter's mind is the words of David. Where can I depart from your presence? If, I'm, if I ascend with the wings of eagles to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. I can't flee from your presence, so would you please leave me because I am not worthy to be in your presence. I, it is just, the light bulb is just going on on who you are. You are the creator of the universe. I just thought you were just some great rabbi, and now I know you're God, and whenever man finds himself in the presence of holiness, everything inside of us just churns. You know, you go to Hallmark and you see all these greeting cards that talk about the nearness of God and they're all pastel colors and sunsets and things like that. But when you read about the nearness of God in the Bible, it's like, ah, I think I'm going to die. It's not a comfortable situation. How many people did it said they dropped down and felt like they were going to die? And I think it's not just total fear, but I think it's, I feel like I'm going to die because I deserve to die. When you're in the presence of incredible holiness, you realize your incredible sinfulness. And so he's like, hey, I, I, I'm about to die here, Jesus. I can't handle the whole, your holiness. I am a sinful man. Here's, that's why I want you to depart from me, because I am a sinful man. When you hear the word of God and you hear Jesus taught properly, it realizes, man, he is amazing. I, I stink. <laughs> I am no good. I am really sinful and I am worse. And what, but at the same time, when you receive the gospel, say, but I'm not worthy, but yet he makes me worthy that he gave me his righteousness and that I stand in Jesus. And so now, wow, even though I don't deserve to, I can boldly go before the throne of grace. I can walk into my heavenly father's throne room and say, I love you, father. I need your help with this. He's like, hey, I'm glad you're here, son. We don't deserve any of that, but Jesus gives it to us anyway. And so he accepts the lordship of Christ, not just calling him master anymore, but teacher. It's interesting that Isaiah had a similar experience. Isaiah is sent to preach to Israel to repent. So he's saying, woe to you hypocrites over here because you neglect the widows. And oh, woe to you over here, you hypocrites, because you, you neglect the orphans. And woe to you hypocrites over here because you're, you're being two-faced about everything. And, all, and he just starts pointing out all the hypocrisies of Israel. And then, he's, then it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. 
and the train of his robe filled the temple. You know, if you watch royal weddings like that, the longer the train, the more important they are. Like brides might have a short little train, but if they're a princess, they might have a really long train with people carrying it. And if they're the queen, they have a really long train that goes like out the door. He's saying God's, th- God's train was so long, it just filled up, the- went made laps around the building, you know. And he says, high and lifted up, and his train of filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, which were angelic-like beings. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. Why are these angels covering their face? Yeah, because they're not worthy to look on the holiness of God. And with two, they covered their feet. Why? Because they're not worthy to stand on holy ground. And with two, they flew so they wouldn't fall on the ground. And so, and one called to another, holy, holy, holy. You know, they don't have exclamation points in Hebrew. So if they want to emphasize something, they say it twice. But there's a few things in the Bible that says three times which shows you it's the most important attribute of God, is holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him. Anybody ever in here been in an earthquake? Yeah, never. I never have. They say it's like one of the most unsettling feelings, that like the very thing you depend on, the ground, is now moving. And here, Isaiah has the most unsettling feeling because the ground beneath him under that one of the most stable, solidly built structures ever known, the temple, God's voice is causing it to shake. God's voice is causing this amazing earthquake. And after preaching Israel, saying, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, he says, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am lost. I thought Israel was lost. I'm lost with them. I dwell. I am a man of unclean lips. I just got on the them all the things, the hypocritical things they're saying. I realize my lips are bad too, and I'm right in the middle of them, of people of unclean lips. What would make Isaiah and Peter feel so unworthy and so sinful? He says, why? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The more you behold Christ the King in scriptures, the more you realize, oh my gosh, he is so amazing. I don't even come close to that. And see, what we see in the pulpits in America today is, you're awesome. Build up your self-esteem. You're, you're amazing. You can do anything. Believe in yourself. Follow your heart. Garbage, garbage, garbage. That's what it is. The Bible says we are more sinful than we want to admit, but the good news is we are more loved than we can ever dare imagine. It says, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. They were astonished at the power of Jesus. Jesus is showing them, hey, I'm more than just a miracle man. I'm more than a great rabbi. I am God who's become human flesh living amongst you. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And you look at the number of fish in those two boats that were about to sink. That's just the tip of the iceberg on the millions that would become the Christ because of the ministry of Peter. All right, um... Let's see. Uh, Bob, would you do the lights again? Or sorry to ask Bob. Bob's recovering from his ankles there. <laughs> All right. So um, this is, again, a scene from The Chosen. It kind of sets out. You'll see a couple things that are probably don't match the Bible, which is fine. That's why I teach it first and explain it first, because I want you to interpret The Chosen from the Bible, not the other way around. But here we go. Put that down for a catch. A little farther out. I don't have a quarter with you. 
teacher. But we've been doing this all night. Nothing. All right. Two words. I told you. My brother and the baptizer. <laughs> you are the Lamb of God, yes? I am. Depart from me. I am a sinful man. You don't know who I am and the things I've done. Don't be afraid, Simon. I'm sorry. We, we've waited for you for so long. We believe. But my faith, how sorry. Lift up your head, Fisher. What do you want from me? Anything you ask, I will do. Follow me.
is well. Yes, you, James and John, come, follow me. I'll take the fish to the market and settle up Simon's debt. I'll get some help to fill both of these boats. Are you sure? Yes, go. What will you tell Ima? <laughs> We've just been called by the man we prayed for our entire lives. And you ask me, what will I say when you miss supper? <laughs> go, now. There are times in our life when God overflows our boats. Amen. You're going to be um, sitting with your family and your kids around Christmas, opening gifts, enjoying a great meal, and God's overflowing your boat. Your response should be, Lord, what do you want me to do? To be thankful, to truly be thankful for all he's done for us. Often our response is, hey, Jesus, do you want to go in business with me? We could fill these boats over and over again. We could get really rich. You know, what, our, what should happen is when he overflows our lives, we realize, you know, I don't deserve any of this, but I'm thankful for all of this. And that gratitude should re be submitting to his leadership. He, is, he has authority over sickness. He has authority over the demons. He has authority over his own plan. And he's right now, today, things aren't out of control from him. He's in control of all of it. And he has authority over all creation, which includes us. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything. Like in The Chosen, it says they sold the fish to pay off Peter's tax debt. That's a neat little hypothetical. But I believe Peter walked away from the boatloads of fish. Let somebody else have them. They literally walked away from everything. The nets, the boats, and the fish that were in them. And there comes a time when God asks you to let go of everything. Some of it, he may ask you to leave. You may have to leave a career. You may have to leave something. But he wants you to give it all to him, to say it really is all yours, and to fall at his feet and accept him as Lord and Savior. That's what this is about. This is about authority. Is Jesus the authority over your life? Does, does he determine your relationships, where you live, what you do for a living, how you raise your kids, how you spend your money? Is he really in control? Do you pray about those things? Or you say, well, you can be in charge of all this, but this relationship over here or this money over here, this is mine. Either Jesus is Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. That's what Jesus is calling for. In Luke 9, 24, a few chapters ahead, it says, for whosoever will save his life, you hold on to it, you're going to lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits his own soul. Romans 6, 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. We all deserve to die, but God has given us a free gift. That free gift is Jesus Christ dying for our sins on the cross, and therefore, by putting faith in him, we have eternal life. Romans 10, 9 says, if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, he is the authority over all, over every aspect of my life, and that I believe in my heart that God raised the dead, you will be saved. Have you made that decision? Have you fallen at the feet of Jesus and given him, made him the authority over all? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these great things that actually happened in history. These are not just legends or myths. These are facts that happened. Jesus walked this earth. He proved that he was God. He said that he would die. He said that he would rise again. He said that he would go away for a time and come back and receive us. 
So, Lord, we look forward to that day. Father, if there's one here today who's never accepted Christ as Savior, I pray today they would, they would get real about it. Maybe they look back and they see a religious time, of an emotional experience, a baptism or something, but none of that has resulted in change in their life. I pray today would be the day of total transformation, of giving it all to Christ and, and taking your sacrifice on the cross as the only payment for our sin. Thank you for doing that for us. Thank you for overflowing our lives with what's way more than we deserve. May it respond in lives of gratitude and service for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you, uh, if you have more questions about becoming a Christian, there's my number. Please call me. Let's talk. Maybe you can think of someone you were wishing was sitting next to you to hear this message. I would encourage you to invite someone to join you in church next Sunday. You can grab one of those business cards out on any of the tables and even invite them to use the QR code to watch a video about the gospel. It'll be a great way to share it. Uh, Amanda, can you help me with a question and answer session? My phone's been blowing up here, so it looks like we may not be able to take them all, but we'll see. You might be familiar with that one right there. Oh, it like, turned it on after you put it down. There you go. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, could it be that Simon Peter stated, depart from me because his flesh knew he was covered and full of sin. So his flesh was literally crying out because he knew he, being so sinful, could not stand in front of a holy God. And then I said, well, you just shared that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, th that's exactly right. Yes. And he knew he couldn't depart from the presence of God. So he had to ask God to depart from him. I don't think it was a derogatory or sarcastic statement. Is war ever justified or was human violence or is or is human violence always wrong? How does the application of murder versus killing apply to situations like the Ukraine or Israel war? I guess Sure. Yeah, no, there is a whole just law just war theory and it's based on the Bible and absolutely there was times Jesus commanded I'm, well, yeah, Jesus. In the Old Testament, God commanded Israel to go to war. Um, you have a right to self-defense. If, um, if, uh, if someone breaks into your house and wants to attack your wife and daughter, and you have a 9 millimeter, you have a right to defend yourself and their lives, and you should. Okay? So, um, I mean, and so individual right to self-defense also goes for nations. Nations can defend themselves. We tried our hardest to stay out of World War II, whether we should have or not, I don't know, but Japanese, the Jap Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor drew us into the war. And so we had a right to defend ourselves and then we had a right to defend the nations in Europe against the attack of Hitler. So yes, there is just war. War is a necessary evil. Um, Jesus will be, it's funny, World War I, anybody know, remember what it was called in history? The Great War, the war to what? To end all wars, yeah. I, so ironic, God just laughs and says, yeah, that's just the beginning of all wars, literally. World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and on and on and on and on, the list goes. So, but Jesus at Armageddon will have the war that ends all wars. So Jesus himself will declare war on the armies of the world. So war is a necessary thing. Um, Russia, Ukraine, that's so complicated. It's really two evil dictators fighting for each other over territory. Ukraine is not innocent in this situation either, okay? So America wants to spend hundreds, literally hundreds of billions of dollars 
putting our grandkids in the debt and they will be paying off this debt for centuries because we're, we're getting involved in a skirmish that's not ours. There's a time to defend people. This is not one of my opinion. That's my opinion, okay? I, um, but anyway, um, and it's, it's interesting that uh, we can go to war over oil. We can go to war over other different things like that. But in Africa, when black people kill each other, pff, just let them do it. It's the ultimate racism because there's nothing to be gained by going, sending troops into Africa. So we don't do it. And literally today, thousands of Christians are being killed in the Sudan and Ethiopia by Muslims, and we're not doing a thing. And you talk about innocent people, being women being raped and their daughters being kidnapped and being becoming sex slaves, and we're sitting back doing nothing. But, oh, we got to go help Zelensky because, well, I won't get started. Right. Do you think the mass exodus from the church has anything to do with how Christians live on a day-to-day -day basis? I think it has to do with it some, some, okay? I think that it's, it's all too convenient, though, to point to hypocrites and say, oh, see, that's why I don't go to church. It doesn't stop you from going to the gym. It doesn't stop you from going to the grocery store. And a lot of other, I mean, how many schools have caught teachers molesting children? They, we still send our kids there. Nobody's saying, oh, hypocrites, I'm never going to school again. I had a bad experience with a dentist. I'm never going to the dentist again. We don't do that to any other area of life, but all of a sudden when Christians do, oh, see, that's convenient. You know what I'm saying? So I think it's all too convenient. Yes, are there hypocrit hypocrites out there? Absolutely. Too, way too many. And the th here's the thing, though. Jesus said there would be. So trust Jesus and just keep searching until you find a good one, you know? But I think people, they can watch. Oh, see, I tried it. No, you didn't. You didn't try. You don't try Jesus. There's a famous church that said, you know, do a 60-day trial for Jesus. Just try him. You don't try Jesus. You, it's all or nothing. You fall down at his feet and say, you're Lord of everything. You don't come to him with strings of cuts. Oh, I'll try you out in a test trial. You know, that's what couples do together instead of getting married. We don't do that with Jesus. How should we study the Bible? Um, good, good. Um, don't, here, here's how not to. <laughs> don't play Bible roulette. Like, boom, okay. Go and, go and hang yourself. Okay, well, no, no. <laughs> you know, don't do that, Okay. Um, you should pick a passage and think of, think of, think of the Bible as um, like herbal supplements, okay? You take this for a migraine. You take this to make your gut health better. You take this. You take iron if you're feeling anemic. You know, if you're lacking joy, go to Philippians, okay? If you want to praise God, go to Psalms. If you, you just pick that based on that, but be systematic about it. Don't just pick and choose whatever. Get a reading plan on version and start the book of Romans and go through it and think about it. I'd rather you slow down and read the Bible carefully than read the Bible rapidly in one year. I'm all for reading the Bible in a year. I'm doing it right now. But don't just do it and say, okay, check. I read four chapters today. Okay, read it carefully. But also read it in context. What did the verse before it say? What does the verse after it say? Like everybody loves to quote Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can win the Super Bowl. I can run a marathon. I can do all this stuff. That's not what he's talking about. You know, we like to take verses out of context. There's a coffee cup that says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. And so I love that one. Um, read it carefully. I, I recommend you write things down. Did you mark up your Bible? Take notes, all those things. Uh, even the Version app that we use right here, you can save that and you can add notes to that. Um, I recommend you do that and then go home with your paper Bible and review. Um, there's a lot I could say about that, but that's, is that the last of the questions? All right, great. Let's stand.
And we're going to read this verse of scripture, the blessing, the Aaronic blessing over God's people. In fact, um, Eugene, would you start us off by reading that aloud? Everybody read along with him. 